Triumph Talks. I am Brian O'Shea. I am grateful to be here. I'm grateful for my podcast team. Triumph Talks, we look at ideas that are helpful in life, and we look at some of the triumphs I have experienced and some of the triumphs I have been a sacred witness to. And I'm very honored to have our guest today, Chase Finlay. Chase Finlay of the Hartwood Recovery, of which I am a great fan. And Chase, one of the things he is an expert in is the CRM, which is a modality and an area of study and an area of healing that I admire very much. Chase, welcome. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, I look forward to to what this podcast brings. Grateful you're here. So Chase, we're, of course, going to talk about the meaningful work at Hartwood and about CRM and what you bring healing men and the idea of healing men and a safe place for men. It's something in my heart, it's something in your heart. But I would like to ask, because I am fascinated by it and it is a true part of your life, if you could talk a little bit about where you were born, some of the important events, and then talk a little bit about a ballet life in Russia and a ballet life in New York City. Absolutely. Um, so I will just, I'll just start with my upbringing. I was born in Fairfield, Connecticut. Um, <clears throat> for most of my, my childhood, I was the how do I say this? Uh, introverted type. Um, I was, I was an extremely energetic, athletic child. Um, but always just had this internal sense of not knowing exactly where to fit in. Um, so being integrated with, with sports and dif different athletics, um, outside of that, a lot of my personal time was spent in my own imagination. Um, if you ask my mother, she'll, she'll tell you that for every birthday, every Christmas, I was constantly asking for new costumes to dress up as my favorite movie character or, uh, and anything make believe anything to kind of transcend from the, uh, the physical aspects of life. Um, which I think is, uh, a perfect example as to why ballet spoke to me so much. Um, at the age of eight years old, I went and, and saw a performance that my sister was in. Um, and the school that she was with had hired in a male professional dancer to come in. And naturally, because of carpooling and scheduling things, I, I was around ballet constantly, but never really looked up from whatever project or, <laughs> or game boy or whatever it was that I was doing at the time. And, um, 
this particular performance, um, again, my mom remembers it better than I do, but I sat straight up in my chair and I saw the pure athleticism and creativity and opportunity for this, this male representation to, um, for an hour and a half, pretend like he was someone else. And my mom said my rib cage just swelled up. I sat straight up in my chair and was just locked in throughout the entire performance. Um, so around the age 10 years old, I was begging my mom to get into ballet, um, which is something that's not very common for most 10 year old boys to be asking for. Um, but I think that just speaks to, you know, the instant appeal that I saw from that initial performance. Um, so my life was, was built in, around and about dance. Um, I was in pre-professional schools throughout my childhood and teenage years, um, that kind of, pulled me out of academics at a young age, uh, having to travel into New York city on a daily basis and, uh, you know, going to school from seven in the morning until 3 PM traveling into New York city, dancing from 4 PM till 10 PM rinse and repeat every single day. Um, by the age of 15, I had gone to audition for the School of American Ballet, which is connected to Juilliard. And uh, actually, in that audition, I had Peter Martins, who at the time was the director of the New York City Ballet, approach me personally and made a little deal with me that I would promise to come into that school with um, the reassurance that New York City Ballet was was in the cards for me. Um, I had the accidental blessing of knowing Peter a little bit. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you, you are a little bit physically reminiscent of Peter. I'm sure I, I'm, not the, I'm not the first person to tell you that. No, no. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, when, when somebody of his size, stature, there's no one more important than he, other than Misha. Right, right, right. And magnitude and, and Misha Brishnikov, I had the pleasure of working with throughout my teenage years and trained with. And, um, so anyway, that one thing led to another, I went to the school of American ballet for, uh, less than a year um by 16 was was with the new york city ballet wow yeah yeah it was it was an early entry and an even quicker ascension um promotion to soloist around i think it was 18 years old and then principal dancer at 20 years old wow yeah unbelievable yeah, made the dreams come true. Um, but with that came a lot of a lot of uh, pressure. Oh yeah. And as a 
just a young person in general, I felt as though there was this, this image to uphold, but not the uh, maturity level, life skills, emotional skills <laughs> to, to manage all of that. Um, and that is, that is kind of where, uh, substance abuse came into my life. So with that, you know, the, the career was brilliant, traveled to different countries, different continents, got to live out my dream, dancing on some of the world's largest stages, um, was asked to go to the Mariinsky theater in St. Petersburg and do, uh, to perform Apollo, a, a, a role that was kind of my, my claim to fame. Um, it was, it was looking back at it now, um, really puts things into perspective, just how incredible that part of my life was. Um, but also, how challenging that part of my life oh, was. Oh, I can't imagine, cannot imagine. And tell me a little bit, tell me a little bit about that Russian moment. <laughs> you know, the recognition and appreciation for ballet specifically, but 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 the arts uh, in Russia is, I, I would equate that to, uh, you know, of, of an NFL football stadium. I mean, the second the curtain came up, I was I was terrified, honestly, oh, because I bet. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a foreigner coming into their territory, and I was thinking in my head, nobody's going to know who I am. I, I'm I'm this guy from New York, like <laughs> you know. And you're some uh, interloper because they sort of think they invented ballet. You know, right. <laughs> so you're like, right. oh, he's from some, I don't know. It's like called America or something. I don't know. <laughs> right. And he's here trying to be and, a ballet dancer. And, and Our sport. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and prior to that, you know, I spent a week prior training with their dancers. Oh, I'm and, sure you did. Oh, yeah. And they did not want me around. Oh, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the curtain comes up and before I even took my first step, the audience just erupts with, oh, with wow. applause oh, and wow. the appreciation and the respect for the art form there was, um, you know, I, I, to, to be honest, I would say Russia and Japan, oddly enough, were the most respectful audience members. I would think, but you tell me, I would think Applause in Russia, applause in Japan are almost more valuable than applause in Manhattan. Absolutely. It, right? I mean, I would think so. Yeah, I'm just just culturally, you would think so. Um, but it made those moments uh, that much more profound for me. Oh, it had to be. I mean, a good applause in Russia... For your ballet dancing, I mean, seriously, could there be a finer thing to happen to you? No, 
<laughs> no. And I can remember you—you uh, you probably heard this story. Please forgive me. You knew them much better than I did. One of my pals in security work told me that Peter Martins, when Misha was still in Russia and working for Russia and had KG people around him, KGB people around him, Misha, Peter would say to him, come on, defect. And he would, he would like try to drag him away from the KGB guys, you know, and, uh, and, a, and a security guy told me that a retired uh, secret service guy told me that he goes, Peter is afraid of nothing. He's from Denmark. He would say, come on, Misha, good defect. Come on, man. <laughs> I mean, what a, what, what a courageous thing for you. You're there with those two. I mean, was he doing the white Oak thing at that point? Was, did Misha already have that going? I think, I think that was already established around this time. Okay. Uh, what an amazing moment for you. Fantastic. And yeah, such good guys. I know them. They're good guys. They're good guys. I can absolutely back that statement up. Right? I mean, fab. well, good on you. Good on you. We say that in Ireland when something great happens. Good on you. Good work. Good going. Good on yeah. you. <laughs> oh, mag but incredibly complex. I can't imagine the pressure. Yeah. Um Yes. I mean, again, I'm, I, I just can't help but coming back to the statement of being thrusted into this lifestyle of, uh, I'm, I mean, it's, it's nothing short of a, a young movie star or oh, a, Oh, it's Mick or, Jagger. It's, you know, it's right. Um, you know, being forced into, sit down dinners with 75 year old millionaires, a table full of them and, and having to woo them as a, as a 18 year old having to carry an audience on stage and off stage. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Having, having your photo on the cover of the New York times as the golden boy of New York city ballet is <laughs> large oh. shoes to uphold. Oh no, it's been, it's con it's nonstop pressure. Nonstop right. pressure. So later on, because I want to be respectful of your time, life evolves. And how did you make the magnanimous, generous choice to become a healer? Sure. Um, and, and that is a complex question. Um, so kind of relating to the, a mounting pressure in my life. Um, <laughs> little did I know I, I suffered from alcoholism and addiction. And for years, that was my, my coping mechanism. Um, until as many people who suffer from this same disease know, um, it became wildly out of control for me, which ultimately led to, um, life strong arming me into receiving my own healing, my own help. Um, so having to make that difficult decision in 2018, uh, I, I, I went to, to receive help, um, throughout that process, I experienced 
internal peace like I had never experienced before. Um, I had spiritual moments. I had, uh, uh, I would almost call it a rediscovery of self. Rediscovery of that little Chase who I swore off because he was annoying, uh, uh, didn't fit in in any group that he was around. Um, this this reconnection with my true essence that uh, allowed me to feel at peace and feel whole again. Um, and throughout that process, you know, I had I had achieved everything. So I thought at the moment I had achieved achieved everything externally that I had ever dreamed of. But there was always something lacking internally. And when that reintroduction, that 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 marriage happened again, um, I made the commitment that I that's something that I never wanted to lose. Um, so the direction that I was given to maintain um this quality of life, uh you know, I had to make, again, another hard decision of, I feel like I've done everything I need to do in my past career. Um, and I have no idea what else life holds for me. So I moved to Austin, Texas to live in a house of, of eight other men who were, you know, standing on the firing lines with me. Uh, to courageously step into a new way of life um, and just kind of jumped into life with curiosity. I was doing some some woodworking, custom cabinetry. My, my, I have an older brother who lives in Austin, which is part of the reason why I, I leaned in that direction. Um, he took me under his wing. He, he, helped me out immensely for he, the first it gave you a trade <laughs> absolutely yeah which is real <laughs> yeah uh brother who is also in recovery by the way so um practicing the the 12th step and Amen. just being a, a great brother um helped me get back on my feet but through my own internal meditative prayer practice uh conscious contact with what what i call god um my heart was asking for more um and throughout the process of my own recovery as many know it's giving back what was so freely given to me to other men so for a period of time there was i mean i was sponsoring other men throughout the 12 steps uh, you know, 10 to 12 at a time. And that feeling, that moment of seeing life come back into their eyes um, filled me with a lasting fulfillment and joy that nothing else ever did. So as time passed, I said, that's that's what I want to make my life about. Um, so starting from the ground up, I, I, I reached out to some friends that I knew that work in the recovery industry and work in the healing industry. 
um, and jumped into a afternoon tech position at a treatment center out in Bastrop, Texas, an hour drive away for $13 an hour. I was, I was so, so open and ready to, um, explore this avenue of work. And from there, I mean, I just, I used the determination that ballet had built (laughs) me. You, you had a work ethic. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, and followed my heart and followed my passion and, you know, kept putting one foot in front of the other. And that led me back to my schooling that led me back to higher education, uh, which led me to become an LCDC licensed chemical dependence counselor. And, got me to a point where I was able to not only assist men through a program of recovery, um, but assist them through a, a depth of, of healing that, that I think is necessary for everybody's long-term recovery, but also long-term wellness. Long-term wellness. Now, am I correct? CRM is part of your work. That's correct. Would you kindly tell us a little bit about CRM and how you feel it's helpful? Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with the word trauma. Amen. Uh, I think, I believe that addiction and alcoholism is inherently traumatic. Yes. Um, I say that because most people who experience it understand what I mean by it's not something that we want to be doing to ourselves and to our loved ones. It is something that is, that, that has complete power over us. Um, Within that as well is there are many, many underlying factors that perpetuate our substance use as well. So through contemplation of my life and through, you know, this, this, this want to help people at a deeper level, I, I just looked at my own life (laughs) and, and, and I said, what have I been through? Um, and what is, what has been, what has stood out to me that has helped me heal and, and progress in life to such a, to a greater level. Um, So naturally I just, I started to explore trauma modalities. Um, Throughout that process, there are a lot of wonderful trauma modalities, but uh, many of them require a master's degree, which I do not have, um, just due to, I was, well, you were dancing. a little busy, a little bit, a little bit busy. You were yeah. a tiny bit busy. <laughs> right. Right. So I did some exploring and I met, uh, a woman named Morgan Grace, who oh, is a, a, an incredible human being. Um, and a mentor and, and a mentor of mine. Wonderful. Yeah. I did wonderful. a men's group last night under the alchemy wing. 
on Zoom. Morgan, Morgan's one of my mentors. Beautiful. Morgan was Morgan was our first episode in the Triumph Talking Triumphs podcast. Morgan was our first episode. I'll have to tune into that one because she's, you know, she she's been an inspiration, a mentor of mine as well, and is responsible for pointing me in the CRM direction. Um, There you go. Welcoming me into the CRM family, I guess I should say. Yeah, I was lucky. She was burdened with me the same way Borges was burdened with me. They were innocently working at Driftwood, and suddenly I was thrown into their lives. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would say that you're all lucky to know each other because it's, oh. it's a great group of people. It reminds me when you think of some things, it's like when – the Stones and the Beatles lived in the same neighborhood in London. There's times when there's this is a great guy, that's a great guy, early career, and then, you know, you, you stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, not to get off topic, but that's something that is so wonderful about Heartwood Recovery Center. Is no, that's the topic is Heartwood. It's just this 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 atmosphere right now that is so rich with knowledge and healing and 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 I don't know, I just I just feel like people that have their their hearts and heads in the right place um and are just doing incredible work together. Oh, my experience right now is that's where the magic is happening. You know, I mean, it, it's really sacred work going on there. I agree. And so stepping into the CRM family, um, I've had the opportunity of doing training under Lisa Schwartz herself. And um, she also has been a great mentor and taken me under her wing. Um, but CRM for me, the reason why it it's it feels just so right for for the addiction world, for the addiction field, I feel like there is a a large stigma around trauma in men's lives in general. Um, so I feel like the spiritual nature of of the CRM practice allows men to bypass all of that. And it steps into a, a deep, deep, um, true place within somebody, you know, it pretty much opens up that doorway to, to allow the subconscious to just, to just speak and say what it needs to say to show us what has been so repressed for so many years. Um, that's that stuff, the spiritual malady that, that kind of just gnaws at us throughout our life. And it allows those things to come forward, but in a very safe in a very, you know, the, the beginning process of CRM really is just about creating a scaffolding to help somebody just be incredibly embodied and incredibly safe throughout the process because the last thing that we want to do is throw somebody into a traumatic event with nothing (laughs) 
because I feel like that is that is counterintuitive. So to allow them to see not only levels of their of their trauma, but to see parts of themselves that they have neglected for so long can be naturally jarring. So to create um, a safe embodied state for them to be in, um, healthy resourcing, healthy attachment figures for them to um, for them to resource throughout their their process. I feel like it's it's just a very honest, very nurturing way to go about this trauma work. It's the wiser path in many ways. It's the wiser path in many ways. I agree. You know, Carl Jung, who I really follow as deeply as I can, I'm reminded Carl Jung says, what we don't repair will repeat. In your subconscious, if you don't repair, it will present and you'll call it life force, but it'll be Mm -hmm. your subconscious constantly interrupting your life and you'll call it fate. Carl Jung said that. It's your subconscious. You don't feel that. It's going to keep interrupting your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see far too much in this, in this addiction field of people coming into treatment and out of treatment and into treatment and out of treatment. And people are scratching their head and wondering why this continues to happen. But I feel like it's because we're, we're, we're avoiding the the important work. Yeah. The old model was God blessed that it was created. But for some, the old model does not address. Right. So I would like you now to talk a little bit about Hartwood and just kind of the philosophy and the whole feeling. And I want to close with that and take as much time as you like. Tell us a little bit about Hartwood, please. Yeah. Um, well, I've got a a, a pretty personal relationship with Hartwood in general. That's where I went to sober living. That's where I decided to uh, land when I came to Austin. So back in 2018, that is, that is where I first met, met Frank Schmidt, the, the owner of Hartwood. Um, Frank's amazing. So I, two years ago when he reached out to me, when I was really just kind of getting my bearings as a clinician, and asked me to join the team and help create Heartwood. Um, it was instant instant decision. There was no question in my mind. Um, that is where my journey began. And now coming full circle and getting to give back through Heartwood was just uh, an automatic yes. Um, but Heartwood is a very, very, as you said, at a very special place. We are a 16 bed all male facility that we truly believe that of course, 
men come into our facility with substance abuse issues. But as we're talking about CRM, I think that paints the picture that we treat each individual as a whole human being. We look at everything that needs to be addressed in the short amount of time that we get with them um, to help them find wholeness again, because it's not just about it's not just about targeting one piece of an individual, but how can we help them with their substance use? How can we help with their family dysfunctions? How can we help with their uh lack of financial stability? How can we develop a health and wellness routine for them? How can we, I mean, you name it, we, 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 career, 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 dietary issues, um, getting them immersed into community. It's a beautiful part about us being so centralized in Austin is we get to take them out to AA meetings and recovery events and get them socialized before they transition out. Um, get them connected with their sponsors, their permanent 12-step sponsors in treatment. Allow them to meet other therapists and recovery coaches and everything that they'll be stepping into as they transition out of our care um, so that there's a, 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 a true integration, reintegration process. Um, one of our core beliefs and, and, and something that we take pride in that we stay true to since the very beginning that we opened is true individualized care. We are the staff to client ratio allows us to be able to treat each individual as an individual. And that I, I believe does create something very magical. Um, but also I think is just what continues to set Heartwood apart from other places and staying true to that, no matter how crazy things get and, and uh, whatever challenges we might face, I think is part of the heart and soul of Heartwood. Magnificent. Magnificent. Chase Finley, thank you for taking time. Thank you for taking time. Honored to be with you. I'm a big fan of Heartwood. Honored to talk to you. It's a powerful thing. You had great success in an early chapter, and I want to reflect to you authentically. You're now having great success in a second chapter. You're healing, helping people. I mean, how lucky is that? It's, I, I'm, I wake up knowing that I'm extremely fortunate every day. Well, you've done the work too. You've done the work. I remember one night at Studio 54, a bunch of uh, New York City Ballet people came. There was a benefit or something. And I asked them, I said, so what's it like for you? Because a lot of my life at that point was vodka, cocaine, and discotheques. So I asked them, so what's it like for you being at a, a discotheque? <clears throat> you know, because I, I was a horrendously embarrassing. I was worse than John Travolta in Saturday Night Live and looked exactly like that, that clothing, that haircut. 
I mean, I was the embarrassment. I cringe watching that movie, but that was my life. So I asked these New York City ballet dancers, what's it like for you to be at a disco? They said, well, you know, it's sweating. <laughs> That's how they do Because yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, this is like ballet, you know. <clears throat> and, and then I saw Misha da- jump once. I got, I was, I was backstage and I saw Misha jump once. And I said, yeah, that, that didn't happen in Studio 54. <laughs> that a human being left the ground that far and oh, yeah. came back down. Chase Finley, an honor friend. Thank you so much for having me. See you soon. Chase, if you would just log off right quick. There you go. I got to clean this up. Okay. All right, we're back. Thank you, Brian O'Shea. Triumph Talks, Talking Triumphs. I wanted to talk a little bit about holiday strategies and strategic holiday plannings. And I know in my recovery, I used to bring a safe friend bodyguard with me to a lot of events. And that helped me in my holiday events. I had some friends that we were safe with each other for parties, work parties, social events. And the idea that I wanted to offer that really helped me that's very powerful is the idea of being strategic during the holidays and planning safe events, planning safe cups of coffee, meals, visits, structuring your holidays in a way that protect you and that give you safety. The holidays are a very powerful time emotionally. And being more deliberate and being more thoughtful about surrounding the events that we are going to are helping you have better holidays. I want to keep that in mind for you for the holidays. We'll see you next week.